Shake yourself, wake yourself up, and turn with me to the book of Daniel. Now, two weeks ago, I began preaching uh, through the book of Daniel. And last time we saw how Nebuchadnezzar carried off some of the best and brightest of Judah off to captivity. And I told you, of course, that the Babylonian captivity of Judah took place in three stages. And, and uh, these, uh, Daniel and the three Hebrew children, as we call them, they were part of the first stage. And they're carried off into captivity. They are of noble lineage, probably uh, part of the king of Judah's family. And they're put in the Babylonian indoctrination system. All right, in the Babylonian public education system. And going to be raised up in that culture. And the, and the objective, of course, was to make good Babylonians out of those who were carried off. I talked to you about how that we live in the midst of a culture that is constantly trying to mold us into its image. Which is why, of course, we're told in Romans 12 that we're to be transformed... We're not to give in to culture, but we're to be transformed by the renewal of our minds. We need a renewal of our minds and our hearts. And we saw how, of course, that culture renamed these men, but Daniel purposed in his heart that culture wouldn't claim him. And we saw how they refused to eat the king's meat, etc. You remember that story. Now, one thing that I know whenever I preach on narrative stories in the Bible. You know them well. We learned these stories in kindergarten, and it's, it's actually a bit intimidating as a preacher to preach on some of those stories because I know you know them, and, and I, I'm afraid you'll check out on me. Like, you'll kind of go into cruise control and go to sleep. I don't want that to happen, all right? But I, I reassure myself and remind myself, I should say, that my job is not to be original. Preaching is not about being original. Preaching is about reminding you. And all of us need reminded of what God's Word says, including these stories that we learned in Sunday school as children. Now, you recall last time I emphasized how that the book of Daniel is not really about Daniel, but it's about God. A God who is at work behind the scenes. It was God who gave Jehoiakim into the hands of the king of Babylon. It was God that gave Daniel wisdom and his friends wisdom. It was, it was God at work in all of it. And so now I want you to see Daniel chapter 2. And we're told in the second year of the reign of Nebuchadnezzar, Nebuchadnezzar had dreams. His spirit was troubled and his sleep left him. That happened to me Friday night. Now, I didn't have any dreams, but my sleep left me or Saturday morning, whenever it was, I just didn't get any sleep. Then the king commanded that the magicians, the enchanters, the sorcerers, and the Chaldeans be summoned to tell the king his dreams. So they came in and stood before the king, and the king said to them, I had a dream, and my spirit is troubled to know the dream. Then the Chaldeans said to the king in Aramaic, O king, live forever, tell your servants the dream. Now let me just pause here for a minute. One thing that's interesting here about the book of Daniel is it's, it's really the only book of the Bible that something like this just happened, and you didn't even see it in English. But what just happened in the book of Daniel is now for the next several chapters, you know, the Old Testament is primarily written in Hebrew. And the first section of Daniel was written in Hebrew, but right here, a shift just happened, and it's now in Aramaic. And it will stay in Aramaic 
for quite some time. And it's, it's just a fascinating part about the book of Daniel. And so here when the shift happens that the, they, they respond to the king in Aramaic and say, O king, live forever. Tell your servants the dream and we will show the interpretation. The king answered and said to the Chaldeans, The word from me is firm. If you do not make known to me the dream and its interpretation, you should be torn limb from limb and your houses shall be laid in ruins. But if you show the dream and its interpretation, you shall receive from me gifts and rewards and great honor. Therefore, show me the dream and its interpretation. They answered a second time and said, Let the king tell his servants the dream, and we will show its interpretation. The king answered and said, I know with certainty that you are trying to gain time, because you see that the word from me is firm. If you do not make the dream known to me, there is but one sentence for you. You have agreed to speak lying and corrupt words before me till the times change. Therefore, tell me the dream, and I shall know that you can show me its interpretation." The Chaldeans answered the king and said, There is not a man on earth who can meet the king's demand, for no great and powerful king has asked such a thing of any magician or enchanter or Chaldean. The thing that the king asks is difficult, and no one can show it to the king except the gods whose dwelling is not with flesh. Because of this, the king was angry and very furious and commanded that all the wise men of Babylon be destroyed. So the decree went out, and the wise men were about to be killed, and they sought Daniel and his companions to kill them. Then Daniel replied with prudence and discretion to Arioch, the captain of the king's guard who had gone out to kill the wise men of Babylon. He declared to Arioch, the king's captain, why is the decree of the king so urgent? Then Arioch made the matter known to Daniel. And Daniel went in and requested the king to appoint him a time that he might show the interpretation to the king. Then Daniel went to his house and made the matter known to Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. That's Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. But those are their Hebrew names there. His companions and told them to seek mercy from the God of heaven concerning this mystery, so that Daniel and his companions might not be destroyed with the rest of the wise men of Babylon. And then the mystery was revealed to Daniel in a vision of the night. Then Daniel blessed the God of heaven. Daniel answered and said, Blessed be the name of God forever and ever to whom belong wisdom and might. He changes times and seasons. He removes kings and sets up kings. He gives wisdom to the wise and knowledge to those who have understanding. He reveals deep and hidden things. He knows what is in the darkness and the light dwells with him. To you, O God of my fathers, I give thanks and praise for you have given me wisdom and might and have now made known to me what we asked of you for you have made known to us the king's matter. So obviously, this narrative, this story begins with this troubling dream of Nebuchadnezzar. Now just picture the scene with me. This great king, Nebuchadnezzar, who's conquered most of the known world, he wakes up in a sweat in the middle of the night. He's had a frightening dream again. He's had a nightmare. He's getting more and more upset. He's been a successful general he's been he's conquered all these nations but now the greatest king in all the earth can't sleep now it appears this dream has been a reoccurring one in verse one it tells us he had dreams the the word here is plural so it, it appears that he's had this reoccurring nightmare that keeps happening and he wants to know what the meaning of this dream is of course, he saw this huge statue of a man 
The head of the man was gold, the chest and the arms were silver, the middle and thighs were bronze, legs of iron, feet part of clay, partly iron, partly clay. And then you remember how the stone comes out of the mountain, it rolls down, it smashes the statue into powder. We'll talk about all that next time. The wind blows the powder away, there's no trace of the big statue left. But strangely, this stone begins to grow until it becomes a huge mountain and then it fills the whole earth. This is this terrifying, troubling dream that Nebuchadnezzar is having. And he keeps having it, night after night. And it begins to terrify the king. And surely, he thought, there must be some message for me in this dream. Now, he's only in his second year as king of Babylon. And perhaps he's wondering if he can keep control of this empire that he's now over. His father was a man named Nabopolazar. I probably mispronounced that, but Nabopolazar had reigned for 20 years, and he had established the Babylonian dynasty. And there was always more enemies to conquer. There was always the problem with conquering nations is those people in the nations typically don't appreciate you conquering them. And so there's always a threat to your empire. And Nebuchadnezzar had become king right as Judah. In fact, they had went to, went, Babylon had went to do battle with Egypt. And at that time, Nebuchadnezzar was basically the leading general. His father was in control, but his father died. And when his father died, Nebuchadnezzar had to go back to make sure he established that now I'm in charge, not somebody else. And on his way back is when he took these captives from Judah. And so whatever his thought process was as he had these dreams, his spirit was troubled and his sleep left him, is what verse 1 says. So here's the most powerful man in the world shaking in his PJs because he's had a bad dream. He had everything the world could offer. He had position, he had power, he had prestige. He had everything that the world lives for. Would you want what he had? I mean, he's got money, he's got power, he's got everything. I mean, most of us would jump at the chance to have control. Now, maybe we wouldn't want to be king, but we would love to be king of our lives. King of our circumstances. Make life go the way you want it to go. And the reason that's appealing is because that's really the very root of the nature of sin. And Nebuchadnezzar had it all. But now he had a problem. He's having a bad dream, and he's wondering if this bad dream has any significance for him. And so this king with his troubling dream calls in his wise men and he makes a terrifying demand of his wise men. He commanded them that they should be summoned and tell the king his dreams. I had a dream and my spirit is troubled to know the king, to know the dream. And his wise men respond, O king, live forever. Tell us your dream and we'll give you an interpretation. You see, that's how they rolled. All right? That's how these wise men made their living. They, they would, they, in fact, they had a system, a whole system for dream interpretation. In fact, archaeologists have found writings of, of, of these Babylonian wise men, 
in which they, they wrote down their whole system of how they would interpret dreams. But of course, they had to know the dream first. These wise men say they'll be happy to tell you. We'll be happy to tell you, Nebuchadnezzar, with the interpretation of your dream. But first, you've got to tell us what it is. So they were basically functioning a lot like the dream interpreter on the Christian radio station here locally. Have you heard that, Pagan? I mean, that, I'm sorry. Yeah, Pagan. Because that's Paganism, by the way. On our local Christian radio station. All right, I got in the weeds there. But Nebuchadnezzar wasn't content with guessing. He wanted to know, what does this mean? And so he makes a terrifying demand of these wise men. And here it is, verse 5. The king answered and said to the Chaldeans, The word from me is firm. If you don't tell me my dream and the interpretation, I'm going to tear you limb from limb. Any minute. After all, he's the greatest king on earth. And if he gives the command, that's what's going to happen. Now, I want to just point out something that there's some debate around verse 5. The King James translates what the king says as, the thing is gone from me. Now, the ESV puts it, the word from me is firm. Now, because of the King James translation, often uh, a lot of people think, well, the king has forgotten his dream. And that's often how it's taught in Sunday school. And I don't want to ruin anybody's Sunday school lessons, but most translations, in fact, all translations that I know of now, believe that what the king is saying, it's a difficult word to translate, but, but what he's saying here is, I've said it, and this is what it's going to be. You're going to tell me the dream, and you're going to give me the interpretation. It's not so much that he's forgotten the dream, but he has spoken, in other words. Like, us dads understand this because occasionally we tell our kids, I've spoken. You know what I'm talking about? And that's what Nebuchadnezzar is saying here. The thing from me is firm. I've spoken. This is how it's going to be. In other words, I'm not, this isn't up for debate here. You've got to tell me my dream and the interpretation because he wants to know what it means. So obviously now, their backs are to the wall. And so in verse 7, we're told, they answered a second time and said, let the king tell his servants the dream and we'll show the interpretation. And the king answered and said, I know with certainty that you're trying to gain time because you see that the word from me is firm. If you do not make the dream known to me, there is but one sentence for you. You've agreed to speak lying and corrupt words before me till the times change. Therefore, tell me the dream, and I shall know that you can show me its interpretation. So he's saying, listen, I'm not playing around here. I'm not going to allow you to use your little tricks and make a guess on what that dream means. I've got to know that you really know what you're talking about. Well, the Chaldeans answered the king and said, there's not a man on earth who can meet the king's demand. And they were right about that. And then they said, there's no greater powerful king that's ever made such a command. The thing that the king asked is difficult. No one can show it to the king except the gods whose dwelling is not with flesh. 
And so they're trying to convince the king, please just tell us your dream and we'll make the interpretation known. And the king says, you're just trying to gain time. And then he, he goes further. He says, not only are you trying to gain time, you're trying to gain enough time until there be a change in who's king. Until the times change. In other words, a lot of these, in fact, you'll see this with Daniel, he remains a wise man in the kingdom beyond just Nebuchadnezzar, of course. And so he's accusing these wise men of not being loyal. And now their back's to the wall, their limbs are about to be torn apart. And they say, well, not even the gods can tell you that, Nebuchadnezzar. And they're right. But there is a God in heaven who can tell the dream. One man put it this way. He said, why does the biblical writer want you to hear that? Not because in helpless frustration they so much as call the king an irrational royal nutcase, but because their words are a confession of the failure of paganism. You see, these, these wise men were involved in all these pagan practices. Some of them tried to conjure the, up the dead. Some of them tried to use magic. Some studied the stars. All these things, but it was all a failure because they really can't do any of those things now we're not entirely sure let me just back up here for a moment verse 12 tells us that because of this the king was angry and furious and now they're all going to be torn limb from limb and now we meet daniel again now we don't know why daniel and his three friends weren't part of the original group before the king it may have been and i tend to think perhaps that this particular account is actually happening before they graduated from Babylonian University. Remember, they had a three-year course. And so perhaps they're, at this point, are not considered graduates of the program, and so they're not the ones called before the king initially. But the word goes out now that all the wise men are going to be killed, and that includes Daniel and his friends. Now... The executioner goes looking for him. And that leads us to my third part point here I want you to see. And that is the trust for deliverance that happens. So the, 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 this Arioch, the chief executioner, goes hunting the wise men, which include Daniel and Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And verse 14 says, Then Daniel replied with prudence and discretion to Arioch, the captain of the king's guard who had gone out to kill the wise men of Babylon. Let me ask you a question. How would you respond if the executioner showed up at your door? Like, I mean, not even just verbally. That too. But how does Daniel respond when the executioner shows up at his door and says, Hey, Daniel, come here. It's time for your limbs to be torn from you. I mean, that's the news he's just received. But Scripture says he responded with prudence and discretion. I mean, everyone else was in turmoil. The king's in turmoil. And all the wise men are in turmoil. But Daniel here is cool, calm, and collected when under pressure. Why? Because Daniel's faith was in God. His confidence was in the Lord. And he knew that his destiny 
rested in the sovereignty of God. And so even though his life is on the line, he's responding here, not in panic and despair, but he's responding with tact and discretion. We need those two virtues, don't we? Andrew Murray wrote this. When an army marches into the province of an enemy, its safety depends on the guards which are set, which are to be always on the watch, to know and to give warning when the enemy approaches. Advanced guards are sent out that the territory and power of the enemy may be known. This prudence, which looks out beforehand and looks around, is indispensable. The Christian lives in the province of the enemy. All that surrounds him may become a snare or an occasion of sin. Therefore, his whole walk is to be carried out in a holy reserve and watchfulness in order that he may do nothing indiscreet. He watches and prays that he may not enter into temptation. Prudence keeps guard over him. Discretion keeps watch over the lips. Now get this. What loss many a child of God suffers by the thought that if he only speaks nothing wrong, he may speak what he will. He knows not how, through much speaking, the soul becomes ensnared in the distractions of the world. Because of the, in the multitude of words, there is not wanting transgression. Discretion endeavors not to speak save for the glory of God and blessing to neighbors. God help us to keep a guard over our lips. And perhaps I should add in 2020, a guard over our keyboards. You know what I'm talking about? We need prudence. We need discretion. And Daniel wisely and respectfully raised a question here. He says, well, why is the king in such a hurry? Why is he in such a hurry to commit mass murder of all his advisors? And Arioch tells him why. And Daniel responds with what's really an incredible act of courage and faith. He goes into the king's throne room. And he does the very thing, and he asks for the very thing that Nebuchadnezzar has already said no to. Back in verse 8, the advisors had asked for time, and Nebuchadnezzar said, no way, Jose. That's not an exact translation. But he said, no way. And Daniel goes in, in verse 16, and he asks for time, and he promises to come back and give the king what he's asking for. Now, how's Daniel going to do that? Like, he doesn't know what Nebuchadnezzar dreamed. And he certainly doesn't know how to interpret it if he doesn't know what Nebuchadnezzar dreamed. So how can Nebuchadnezzar, or not Nebuchadnezzar, how can Daniel promise Nebuchadnezzar, I'll be back and I'll tell you your answer. I'll give you what you're looking for. Well, the reason Daniel could promise that was because he had incredible trust in his God. Now, again, let's remind ourselves Daniel went into captivity probably when he was 15 years old. He's now in the second year of Nebuchadnezzar's reign, so he's around 17 years old here. At 17, he's already responding with more prudence and discretion and faith 
than most of us, probably all of us. He's been exiled, he's been conquered, he's been made a slave, he's been indoctrinated. He's a man now marked for death. But he's cool, calm, and collected, and he's perfectly capable of speaking truth to power because he trusted in his God. And so then we're told, and it's, it's really kind of shocking because considering Nebuchadnezzar's uh, mental state here, he, he agrees. And verse 17 says that Daniel went to his house and made the matter known to Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, his companions. And he told them to seek mercy from the God of heaven concerning this mystery. So he's, he needed some prayer support. And he goes and he asks his three friends, pray for me. I've just told the king, God's going to give the answer. And then he does something. Now, let me, let me just stop here for a second and say that their lives are on the line. So you could say this is a 911 emergency prayer time, right? His back's against the wall. He desperately needs God to come through. But something that I don't want to miss is that as you go further in the book of Daniel, you find out Daniel doesn't just pray 911 type prayers. In fact, we'll find out later that Daniel's consistent prayer life puts him in the lion's den. I mean, we know that story too. But Daniel didn't just pray in times of emergency. And the reason he's able to have faith to trust God in the time of emergency is because he has a consistent relationship with God. He trusted in God for deliverance all of the time, not just in the times of emergency. Now let me ask you, do we trust in God all the time? Or only in the times of emergency? Now, Daniel knew, I think, what Amos 3.7 tells us, and that is that the Lord does nothing without revealing his counsel to his servants, the prophets. And he knew that God would keep his promises. And then he does something amazing. He asks his, his, his friends for prayer. They pray, apparently. And then Daniel just goes home and goes to sleep. I mean, limb from limb, folks. He's about to die. He still doesn't have the answer. His days are numbered. But he trusts in God to the point where he can just go home and go to sleep. Now, if it was me, I'd be having an all-night prayer meeting, probably. You too, if you knew your limb was going to be torn from your body. We might learn something that you don't have to repeat yourself over and over again to get God's attention. They take the matter to prayer and Daniel goes to bed. And he doesn't lay in his bed trembling in fear all night long. He knew that God had the answer he needed. He'd asked for it. And he goes to sleep. And sometime in the night. And it's interesting, the Bible doesn't say that it was revealed to him by a dream. It says he had a vision in the night. So he went to sleep. The details now of the vision are not revealed quite yet. We'll see that later. But I want you to understand that our God is a God who answers prayer. 
He's a God that answers prayer. And I want you to see what he says next, because what immediately then happens, as soon as he gets the answer, Daniel runs off and tells Nebuchadnezzar. No, that's actually not what happens. What does Daniel do? He gets the answer, and I'll call it a testimony of delight. He returns and he blesses the God of heaven. Verse 19 says, Daniel answered and said, Blessed be the name of God forever and ever, to whom belong wisdom and might. He changes times and seasons. He removes kings and sets up kings. He gives wisdom to the wise and knowledge to those who have understanding. He reveals deep and hidden things. He knows what is in the darkness, and the light dwells with him. To you, O God of my fathers, I give thanks and praise, for you have given me wisdom and might, and have now made known to me what we asked of you, for you have made known to us the king's matter. It's been said that praise for answered prayer comes as naturally as prayers for help, or at least it should. But I think probably too often we're like the nine lepers who didn't come back to give praise, but Daniel wasn't. He was like the one leper who went back and gave Jesus praise. And when God gives him the answer, Daniel stops and he gives a testimony of his delight in his God. And what I want you to see here just real quickly is that Daniel praises God here for his person. And I don't know why that's out of order there, but he praises God for who God is. He says, blessed be the name of the God forever and forever. What's he thanking God for? He's thanking God for his eternality, that God is eternal. He praises God for his power. He says, to whom belongs wisdom and might. So all the power comes from God. He's praising God for his omnipotence, being all-powerful. He also praises God for his providence. He's praising God for his sovereignty. And he says here that God is sovereign over creation, and he's sovereign over leaders. He changes times and seasons. Oh, you thought that just happened naturally. Nature just changes. We're changing toward winter, right? That just happens. No, it's God who's in control. And it's God who's in control of leaders. He removes kings and he sets up kings. Now I know this morning, and you know too, some of you are happy and some of you are upset. Some of you are discouraged and some of you are delighting. Probably. And I ain't going to tell you what camp I'm in this morning. But I want you to know this. No matter who ends up being our next president, who's sovereign? It ain't the guy in Washington, D.C. It's the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. Nebuchadnezzar may have thought he was the man with all the power, but Daniel was serving the God who possessed all power in heaven and in earth, the God who was sovereign. He raises kings up and he puts them down. Puts them down. You remember the book of Habakkuk? I preached through it earlier this year. You remember the, the book of Habakkuk? And Habakkuk was just, he could not understand. He saw Babylon was coming, you remember? And he couldn't understand how God could use a wicked Babylon to judge a wicked Judah. He couldn't understand it. But God had his sovereign purposes in mind. 
And can I just tell you something? Truth of the matter is, no matter who gets to be president, neither one of them's a saint. Who should our hope be in? Shouldn't be in who's our president. Our hope should be in the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords, and that's all I'm going to say about the election. Okay? <laughs> but our king is not in Washington. Our king is still on the throne. And Daniel praises God for his providence. And I don't know what's going to happen over the next couple of weeks as they have recounts and all that kind of stuff. I have no idea. But I know God's in control. And no matter who gets to swear the oath of office in January, it ain't going to take God by surprise. So you know what? We shouldn't have our eyes on Washington. We should have our eyes on Jesus. Our eyes on Jesus. And Daniel praises God for his providence. He also praises God for his purposes. He's praising God for his gifts of wisdom, for knowledge, for understanding, for revelation, for his faithfulness, for answering David's prayer. He hadn't used, Daniel didn't use any astrology. He didn't use any board games. He had consulted no dream manuals. He hadn't even called WDJC. He hadn't read any livers. He hadn't tried to communicate with the gods of this world, man-made gods. He had sought the one true God. He had sought for mercy. And he found it. In the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. We have a God who reveals mysteries. That doesn't mean that he unveils everything to us. He doesn't show us what stocks are going to rise or fall. He doesn't tell you you can avoid cancer till you're 89. He doesn't even tell us if our nation's going to exist for 20 years from now or 200. But he does know, as Daniel reminds us in verse 22, what is in the darkness. And you know what? When you serve the God who knows what's in the darkness, you can walk into the unknown with a God like that. You can keep going without hope and without fear. So what do we need to do? We need to get our eyes on the one who can, in the middle of Babylon... Use a 17-year-old boy who trusted in the sovereignty of God. And we're still talking about him. How many thousands of years later? And really, it wasn't because of Daniel. It was because of the God of Daniel. And the God of Daniel is the same yesterday today and forever. And so what do we need to do? We need to get our eyes on that God and keep doing what He's called us to do. We need to keep being who God has called us to be. And ultimately then, it don't matter who's on the throne because we know the one who's on the throne. Amen?
we're in Babylon. The rebellion of Babylon is carried on through the centuries. The people of those days sacrificed their children to pagan gods. We sacrifice our children to, on the altar of convenience. If they're just not convenient for us, just kill them. Just abort them. Not convenient. Not ready for kids yet. Oh, you may not go and offer your child to the god of Moloch like they did, but we in America do that. You may not bow down to a stone idol, but we give wholehearted allegiance to the gods of money, the gods of power, the gods of sex. Oh, you may not bow down to a stone image, but you're still bowing down to those idols. That's what all those idols represented. The gods of money, the gods of power, the gods of sex, all those things. Too often our devotion to God is an add-on. That's what it was in Judah, and that's why they wound up in captivity. Because God became, Yahweh became an add-on. They added him on along with the rest of the gods. They took the Canaanite gods and the Babylonian gods and the Assyrian gods, and they just tried to incorporate the worship of Yahweh in with them. And as a result, off to Babylon they went. Church, we're exiles. And Peter said, Behold, beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh which wage war against your soul. I could take the time and stop here and talk about the passions of the flesh, but you don't want to be here all day. So let me just tell you something this morning. If you're a Christian, you're at war with the passions of the flesh. And right now, the enemy of your soul wants to destroy you through the passions of the flesh which wage war against your soul. Peter goes on, he says, keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable. Who's the Gentiles? That's... That's the world. Keep your conduct honorable. So that when they speak against you as evildoers, in other words, that will happen, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. In other words, when God comes back, they're going to testify to your honorable conduct. They may not right now, but they will someday. Meanwhile, we've got to remember we're in Babylon. And we may live in Babylon, but Babylon doesn't have to live in us. Would you stand with me this morning? Lord, we thank you this morning for your word. And Lord, when we read of these stories of those who stood in faith, kept their faith in you in the face of great opposition, great danger. Lord, we're reminded this morning that we too are in the midst of a sinful world that's waging war against us. And Lord, I pray that you will help us not to give in to the passions of the flesh,
Help us not to give in to anger. Help us not to give in to despair. Help us, Lord, not to give in to any of those passions that war against us. And help us, Lord, to keep our eyes fixed on the King of kings and the Lord of lords. In Jesus' name, amen. Now, before you go, Kevin's going to play us a, what do you call the end song of the, what do you call that? Postlude, there we go, postlude, here we go. Kevin's going to play for us.